Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to our Higher Branch community. Today, I have a very special podcast to present to you. In fact, it is not a podcast that I recorded one-on-one with this incredible psychologist called Dr. Guy Winch, but it is one that he presented to our audience at the last Upgrade Your Life event here in Sydney. And it was one of the most popular talks and one that our community keeps referring to over and over again, which I suspected would be the case because I invited Dr. Guy Winch to speak at our event after reading all his magnificent books. When I say magnificent, because I'm a person who loves practical takeaways. I'm not just into theory and his books are so practical and you can you can infuse his tools and techniques into your daily life as soon as you read them. And they're delivered with such simplicity and such humor. In fact, I find Dr. Guy Winch an amazingly funny person. He could in fact be a comedian and he once confessed to me that he did do stand-up comedy in New York while he was studying psychology. He has a PhD in psychology. And look, in this talk, he talks about the importance of mental healing. And he makes the point that our mind is the most powerful tool in our body. And it is one that we are constantly neglecting So from a young age, we are taught the importance of looking after our body. You know, it's embedded in us. We're told to brush our teeth twice a day. Uh, You know, if we fall over and graze a knee, we're told to put a Band-Aid. Or if we get sick, we stay in bed. But what happens if our mind is suffering from an emotional wound? You know, what happens when our emotional and mental well-being experiences a cut? You know, we've been taught so little when it comes to uh, how to heal these cuts. And we don't consider that our mind requires healing, you know, yet we expect our mind to perform at 100%, you know, all day, every day. So in this uh, incredible uh, podcast, you know, Dr. Winch takes us through how to overcome the emotional difficulties many of us struggle with regularly. And I promise you, you are not alone if you experience these things. It's it's just that even your idols uh, experience these things. You know, the greatest of great sports heroes or musicians or business leaders. It's just that these people have the tools and techniques to deal with these things. So, um, you know, in this uh, podcast, Dr. Guy Winch shares with us the, the effects of ruminating, how to overcome failure, you know, dealing with rejection and um, uh, ending. He ends with negative self-talk, loneliness. He talks about loneliness and so much more than that. So I urge you to sit back and listen to one of the greatest psychologists on the planet. He has uh, delivered two TED Talks as well that are not only in my top five, but uh, are in the top five most popular on uh, the TED. If you are new to TED, TED is simply TED.com. Uh, it's a community uh, where they invite thought leaders from um, the best thought leaders on the planet to deliver talks for 20 minutes. In this podcast, we're presenting to you a more detailed and a deeper dive into emotional well-being. And without further ado, I present to you Dr. Guy Winch. When I became a psychologist, I, I quickly noticed a different kind of favoritism, and that is how much more we value the body than we do 
the mind. And once you start paying attention to that favoritism, you'll see it everywhere. Uh, a while ago, I was visiting friends, and their five-year-old was getting ready for bed. He was brushing his teeth standing on a stool by the sink when he slipped and scratched his leg when he fell. So, you know, he cried for a minute, but then he leapt back up and reached for a box of bandages so he could put one on his cut. Now, this kid could barely tie his shoelaces, but he knew that you have to cover a cut so it doesn't get infected, and you have to care for your teeth by brushing twice a day. We all know that we have to practice dental hygiene and manage our physical health, and we all take all kinds of efforts to do that. But what do we know about maintaining our psychological health? Nothing. What do we teach our children about emotional first aid? Nothing. How is it we spend more time taking care of our teeth than we do our mind? Now, don't get me wrong, I don't hate teeth. I have teeth. I use mine all the time. But there is something very wrong because we sustain psychological and emotional injuries in life as much as we do physical ones. Injuries like failure or rejection, and they can also become infected if we ignore them, and they can impact our lives in dramatic, dramatic ways. And yet, even though there are scientifically based techniques we could use to ease the pain of our emotional pain, we don't. We don't use them. We don't know about them. It doesn't even occur to us that we should treat these kinds of wounds. And the bias is, is very pervasive. You know, what do we say? Oh, you're feeling depressed? Just shake it off. It's all in your head. Can you imagine saying that to somebody with a broken leg? Oh, oh just walk it off. It's all in your leg. It's time we close the gap between our physical and our emotional health. But that gap is still quite large. Just a few weeks ago, I started talking about emotions, and this one man waved his hand dismissively at me and said, yeah, I don't believe in feelings. That's what he said. I don't believe in feelings. Now, this person was a senior executive in a financial institution, and he happened to say it in the first few minutes of a couple's therapy session with his wife sitting right next to him, dabbing her eyes with a tissue, obviously having feelings. So I did what most psychologists do when you are confronted with something unexpected. And this is a good trick. You, you just repeat the statement in the form of a question, you see. Yeah. You don't believe in feelings, I said to him. And he said, I realize people have them, but they shouldn't matter. They're not real. You know, like, like unicorns and, and aliens. Sure, they've been sightings of feelings, but without hard evidence, we don't really, we don't know. So I turned to his poor wife and I said, did you know your husband doesn't believe in feelings? And she said, no, but it explains a lot. <laughs> and that's what I did. I started laughing. I laughed really hard and I laughed so hard that she started laughing. And then she laughed so hard that he did, did not start laughing. He looked quite displeased, so I said, well, you don't believe in laughter either. And then his hands really clenched, and I said, oh, you, you seem annoyed. He goes, I'm very annoyed. I said, well, there's one feeling you believe in. Now let's examine some of the others and how they're impacting your marriage. The husband was not a cruel man. He wasn't. He just didn't take emotions seriously, much like most of us don't. He thought they were kind of like hemorrhoids. 
you know, the very uncomfortable, don't talk about it, you wait till they go away. But we need to take our emotional life seriously because it has a huge impact on us. And it has an impact on our quality of life, on our productivity, on our relationships, on our ability to be successful, effective. Now, I could spend a lot of time quoting all kinds of statistics about how depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders really impact our functioning and cost companies billions of dollars a year. But I won't do that for a very important reason. I didn't look them up. But here's why. I didn't look them up because depression and anxiety are mental disorders and some people have them. Actually, a lot of people have them. But it doesn't take clinical depression or anxiety to impact your functioning. Stress does that. Rejection does that. Failure does that. And if you think those are minor issues, they're not. We have a finite amount of intellectual resources in our brain. And emotional distress leeches a huge chunk of that, leaving much less left over for you to do your regular life with, your schoolwork, your jobs, your relationships. And whether people are depressed or not is an extreme. But regular people experience emotional distress all the time, many times a day. It impacts us in all kinds of ways. Now, for example, one study asked non-depressed, people who weren't depressed or lonely, to imagine what if they were lonely in five years' time. So it had them think about that, and then they gave people an IQ test, and the IQ tests went down. So for people who aren't lonely, who aren't depressed, entertaining the notion they might be was enough to impair their IQ testing. That's how dramatic things can be, because that's a minor, minor thing. But we know, for example, that failing at one task lowers our ability to think creatively at another. Brooding and ruminating can significantly impair our ability to problem solve. Feeling guilty impacts our ability to attend and focus. Heartbreak at any age can render us absolutely non-functional. And none of these are mental disorders. They are all regular, common experiences, daily life. So treating these kinds of wounds, paying attention to our emotional health is vital if we want to succeed. And learning how to do that will significantly upgrade your life. Now, I'm going to begin with a concept you all know, stress. We all know stress is harmful, it impacts our health, and it impacts our mental state. And when we talk about stress, we attribute it usually to our workplace or to school. Um, now, raise your hand if you consider your job or your schoolwork to be stressful. They were the first to raise their hands. I'm just pointing out, I don't know what you're doing in your schools, but this is something problematic. Um, all right, so that's fine. You can lower your hands. Thank you very much. Um, so we experience jobs and schooling as stressful. But here's my question to you. When you say, oh, my job is really stressful, where is that stress actually happening? Where is it going on? So let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's look at a scenario. Here's a scenario. Your boss or your teacher gave you an important assignment that has a really tight deadline, okay? And to further complicate matters, the stakes are really high on this one, and you've been paired with a partner you find incredibly annoying. 
and difficult to work with. So you're really bummed about this. You're worried, you're upset about it, you're frustrated, you maybe even feel a little bit powerless and you brood about it and you ruminate about it all your way home and when you're at home and, and as you're trying to go to sleep. Now, that word ruminate, what does it mean? The word ruminate means to chew over. It comes from how cows digest their food. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the joys of cow digestion, cows chew, then they swallow. Then they regurgitate it back up again, chew it again, and swallow it again. So it's disgusting, but it works for cows. It doesn't work for humans, because the thing that we tend to ruminate about are the upsetting things, the distressing things, the annoying things. And we do it in a way that is entirely unproductive and harmful. It's the hours we spend obsessing about our bonuses, worrying about tasks we haven't completed, feeling anxious about the future, frustrated about bureaucracy or second-guessing decisions we made. Now, most of us recognize it's important to manage stress by resting and recharging in our spare time. But that's but primarily a mental need to recharge, not a physical one. And the most common and biggest obstruction we face when we're trying to recharge is ruminating. And that's true of most of us. Now, most of you are way too busy at your jobs or at school to ruminate while you're there. This all happens when we're at home, when we're trying to rest and recharge and rejuvenate. Now, over the past 10 years, there's been an explosion of research about how we think about work when we're not at work. And the, and the findings are very dramatic. Ruminating about work, replaying those same upsetting, distressing, anxious thoughts over and over again causes the following. Um, the more you do that, the more likely you are to have sleep disturbances, to eat unhealthy foods, to make choices of unhealthy foods, um, to have worse moods. You have an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease, and it impairs your executive functioning, which are the very skill sets you need to do your job well. Further, by spending disproportional amount of time focusing on negative and upsetting things, you are coloring your perceptions of the world, and you tend to see everything more negatively. Now, the expression, misery loves company, you're familiar with that expression? It's not just about people, it's about thoughts as well, because when we have upsetting and distressing thoughts, others tend to follow because we're in that bad mood. When you're in a bad mood, it's not just about whatever happened. You start thinking, and you know what? That's annoying, and that's upsetting too, and her I hate, and it, it goes all over the place. So when you're ruminating and upset, you're going to be hyper-focused on everything that's bad. And if you do that enough, it, it brings about something called the confirmation bias, which in psychology means we tend to notice things that fit how we're feeling in the moment and ignore things that don't. So when you're in a bad mood, you'll notice all the bad things in your life and you'll ignore the good. And that's what happens when we ruminate too much. And so we start to become more negative, more pessimistic, more depressed. So it's not a surprise, perhaps, then, that studies find that people who have a tendency to ruminate have a much bigger risk of developing clinical depression. And when they do, their episodes of depression, because you know, depression comes and goes, are much longer, and it's harder to break out of them. And worse, it impacts our ability to problem-solve and to take action. We are so used to stewing rather than doing. We become passive. In one study, and this one's a shocker, 
They looked at women who found a lump in their breast, and they gave them questionnaires to see who was a ruminator. The ruminators waited, on average, 39 days longer to make an appointment with their doctor after finding a lump in their breast, which can be a life-saving difference, critical difference. But I'm sure during those 39 days, they obsessed about it, they ruminated, they spoke to all their friends about how upsetting it was, make an appointment with a doctor. That they didn't do. Because rumination makes us much more used to going around in our head like an emotional hamster wheel than it does to take action. Now, you might be thinking, well, thank you very much. I will not ruminate. No, because ruminations are involuntary. No one actually tries to, or maybe some do, but mostly they kind of just pop into your head. When you're in that mood, you start watching something. Two seconds later, ooh, the bad thought comes in. They're intrusive. They're dominant. And the other thing is that when we ruminate, when we obsess about these things, it feels as though we're doing something really important. So it feels like, oh, I have to think about this thing that I've thought about 20 times already because the urge feels very, very important. And so it's hard to stop because it's compelling. Your mind is telling you you need to think about it. And it feels like, well, some use will come of it. None. None will come of it. Now, ruminating about school or about work is very common. Some of us do it periodically. Some of us do it chronically. But the problem is that the people who tend to ruminate most are not the ones who hate school or who hate their jobs. It's the ones who feel good about their jobs, who care, who want to make a difference. That's the upsetting part of it. So if you ruminate, whether periodically or chronically, and you want to stop, here's what you need to do. And I can tell you this because I experienced rumination as well. And I fell into the habit when I started my private practice. I would think about my patients and how it's going and all of that. It would keep me up at nights. And I realized I have to battle this. And so I did. Three things you need to do. First of all, you need clear guardrails, especially those of you at work, but even those in school. You need an hour. At that hour, you stop working. You are done. Now, for me, it was, I chose eight o'clock because morning star, so it's right before bed. Um, But I chose eight o'clock. And at that point, I did not think, or well, sometimes think, but I didn't do anything related to work. And now I say that and people say to me, really, you didn't check a single email. You didn't look at your phone even once. And no, I didn't. Not once. Because it was the 90s. We didn't have phones. You see, there was I got my first smartphone in 2007. You know, the the iPhone had just come out and I wanted to be hip and cool. I got a Blackberry. And um, I I was so excited. Um, You know, my first thought was, I can get emails wherever I am. And like two days later, I was like, I get emails wherever I am. So battling ruminations was hard enough when um, they just invaded our thoughts. But now they have this Trojan horse that we carry around with us. And every time we glance at it, and every time we look at it, ruminations can slip out and slaughter our evening or our weekend. So define when you switch off and switch off. If you can, put notifications off or emails off. Most family and friends use text, but, but have that really hard um, end time. Um, now, the next thing you need to do is when ruminations invade, and they will, There's one way to change them. 
Because what we know is that the ruminative, anxious, worry, thought, or about, oh, I'm so upset about this over and over again. You know, I'll ask you a question. When you are upset about something, how many friends on average do you go and tell the tale to? Research says 12 to 16. So that's the same story. Can you believe she said that? And then she said this, and then this happened. Done with this friend. And can you believe she said that? And then it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Now, the way you get rid of that is that you convert it into a productive form of self-reflection. And a productive form of self-reflection means it's problem-solving. You actually pose it as a problem that needs to be solved, right? Um, and so to illustrate this, I'm going to use the most common rumination I hear, at least from my patients, and that's the, the old chestnut, I have so much work to do. I'm familiar with it. I've got so much to do. So I have so much to do. I have so much work to do is, is really common, and we think about it. Never at work, because at work, we're doing the work. It's when we leave work. It's on our way to work. It's at 3 a.m. in the morning. And it's classic because it's completely useless. It's harmful. So what it does is that when you're after hours, not at work, and you're thinking, I have so much work to do, it is preventing you from being present in what you're doing, for enjoying the things that you like to do. Like my patient, Sally. My, my patient Sally was um, into, um, what do they call them, obstacle course competition, like Tough Mudder. Do they have that down, down here, the Tough Mudder? So, and she would get that thought whenever she was training or competing, and it would ruin her ability to enjoy what she was doing, crawling through cold mud under barbed wire. Tough Mudder competitions. There. So now, to convert, I have so much work to do into a problem-solving question, it's a scheduling question. It's a when will I have time to do this in my schedule? Or what can I move in my schedule to make time for this new thing? Or when do I have 15 minutes to go over and reorganize my schedule? Those are answerable, solvable problems. I have so much work to do is not. It's useless and it's harmful. So rumination is just one example of how our mind does not always lead us down the right path. When we sustain an emotional wound, our mind usually has the wrong idea um, in mind, as it were. See, our mind is brilliant, and it's amazing, but it does require adult supervision. And that's where you, and teenage, teen or preteen supervision um, works well too. So um, this is um, one example. Another emotional wound uh, we sustain in life that we react to in a way that requires adult supervision um, is failure. Now, we fail all the times in ways big, and small. We fail tests in school. We fail at our new diet. We fail in our relationships. We fail to get a promotion left and right. Uh, we fail to get the right gift for our spouse, right? Even that can happen. Oh, the new frying pan. I, I don't cook. But um, how we respond to failure is actually really interesting. And here's an example of a study that illustrates what I mean. They took college students, um, 18, 19 years old, and they gave them four-letter anagrams. Anagrams are words with the letters scrambled up. You have to reorganize them. So if I gave you O-W-O-D, you would spell out wood. Simple, right? Usually we can do that fourth, fifth grade. It's not difficult. So they had these college students and they divided them into two groups. And one group got regular four-letter anagrams. The other group got four-letter anagrams that looked simple, but were actually impossible. So they did those for like 10 minutes. Then they gave them a break. Then they gave both groups another round of anagrams. These were all regular, so anyone could do them. But the group that failed, the first one, couldn't do them. College students who were 18 and 19 years old couldn't do a task 10-year-olds could do. They failed at it because a few minutes 
of doing the impossible anagrams convinced them that they couldn't do it. And once we become convinced we can't do something, it really impacts us. It interferes with our ability to bring those skill sets to the fore. These were simple anagrams and these college students couldn't do them because in their minds, like, ah, I put an anagram, so yeah, I don't know. That's what happens. So when you fail at something, what happens to each of you is that we all have a set of beliefs, responses that gets triggered when we fail. We all have our specific shtick, right? Um, and we all have our specific kind of responses. Some people just give up. Some people try a bit, then they give up. Some people refuse to try. And some people, and it's roughly 20%, it's a minority, will persist and persist and persist until they get it right. But most of us, 80%, will not bring the right effort to it. And we won't even realize that we're doing like, that we're doing that like the college students with the anagrams. They had no idea that they were sabotaging themselves. Now, do you know how your mind responds to failure? You do need that. You need to know that because you need to know what you have to overcome. And the way your mind responds to big failures is the same way it responds usually to small ones. And so once you know, oh, this is my tendency, I get really, really frustrated when I respond to failure, then you can anticipate that. You can start to do something about it. So I want each of you to think of a recent failure that you had. It can be large, it can be small, a test, something, a promotion, something that I'll give you like a few seconds. Just try and conjure up one in which you really try to do something and it, and it was a failure, right? So come up with it. I'll give you a second to come up with it. All right. So if you remember how you felt after you failed, you got demoralized, you got pessimistic, and you really weren't sure whether you should do this again. Some of you were sure you shouldn't. And I'm going to use an example to illustrate how to get over that. And the example I'm going to use is just one that's simple. It doesn't seem to apply to most of you, but I'll say it anyway. That's just dieting or, or change of diet. Actually, because some of us need to do that, we know now, so our energy levels are more uh, sustained. So what happens with people who fail at diets? Most people fail at many, or not all the diets, right? But if you ask someone who's failing at all these diets, what goes wrong? They'll usually point to a pattern, even if they're not aware of the pattern. Oh, I do great for two weeks, and then psh, goes out the window. So once you know that, once you know that you do well for two weeks and then it goes badly, you need to start scheduling an intervention. So what can you change at that two-week mark that will help you? Could you put in an incentive that if you get it past that two-week mark, now you're incentivized? Perhaps on that two-week mark, you stop taking the same route home because it takes you right by that muffin place that you are unable to resist. So take the longer route home so that won't happen. Maybe you shouldn't go into the break room at work if there's some kind of donut winking at you whenever you go in there. Don't go in there. Um, so you can try and find where the obstacles are and where you overcome them. Because there's one thing that's always true about failure, um, and that is it says nothing about who you are. It's actually not about you, per se. It's about your preparation, your execution. How well you thought through what you were doing, how well planned it was. Now, I know this from my own experience. I'm a clinical psychologist, so there's a spoiler in that. But when I applied to graduate schools um, in New York, I wanted to be sure I got in. So there were 15 graduate schools that taught clinical psychology. I decided I'm going to apply to all of them. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to rank them from 1 to 15, so that the minute I get a response, I'll know 
if it's this one, this goes before that one, this before that one. And I spent hours going over every one, even the crappiest ones, so I could rank them correctly. And it turned out I didn't have to do that because all the schools agreed about my application. Uh, they hated it. I, I didn't get into any of them, not even an interview, not one. And so I felt really bad for a day. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's not me they don't like. It's my application. My application can be tweaked. Let me find out where it's weak and make it stronger. And that should be your approach to failure. If you failed, something in your setup, in your, how you're studying, where you're studying, how you're going about it, what the prep is, what your execution is on the day, something is off there. Find out what that is, trial and error, tinker around, change that and try again. But the key part, and this is what I say to everyone, do it differently. You can't just squint and try it again the same way you'll get the same results. So people say, oh, I tried harder. What did you change? I just did it all harder. Well, it's not going to work. There was something wrong in how you did that. So doing it harder, whatever that is, is not going to help you. So failure is something that is instructive because the reality is we don't make 10,000 mistakes in our life. We tend to make three or four and repeat those in endless variety. So once you find out ooh, this is my typical mistake, you can fix a lot of things, right? A lot of things. So go back, be a detective about it, i.e. don't be self-critical about what your mistake was. You don't need to, like a detective doesn't walk into a crime scene and go, can you believe the blood spatter on that wall? It's outrageous. They just go, blood spatter on the wall, you know? So don't be self-critical. You don't need to be emotional about it, but just find out what you can tweak. What can you do differently? And if you have a list of things you can do differently, do it again. Try it again. Doesn't work. Change those. Do it again. And you will succeed at the end. So the thing is that when you make those changes, it'll address a few of the things. Once you have an idea of, oh, with my application for graduate school, I found out that my research component was weak. So I'm like, I went from being demoralized and upset to like, ah, change that. Better chances. Change that. And I got in. So it should give you more motivation. Once you've figured out what you can change, that should help you move forward and change it. All right. The next emotional wound I want to talk to you about is um, rejection. Because like failure, it's extremely common. And it used to be less common. Because we used to have to be rejected kind of face to face. But now, we don't need to be near anyone to be rejected. We just need to post something on social media and have 1,000 of our 1,001 followers ignore it. And then we just got rejected a thousand times. And people get really upset. I liked her baby pictures. What's wrong with my baby? You know, that kind of thing. People feel really upset. They, 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 you know, here's my thing on Instagram and they're, refresh, refresh, refresh. What's going on? People don't like me. It, we, we feel it all the time, but we can feel it in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of situations. And, you know, it can be at work. It can be, um, obviously romantically in all kinds of ways. Now, the thing about rejections is interesting is because even the really small ones, even that friend who didn't like your post, stings. It really hurts. And the interesting thing is that psychologists were interested in is, well, why? Why does rejection, even a small one, hurt so much? And so they took people and they put them in functional MRI machines in brain scanners, and they had them, it's gonna sound a little brutal, but you know, science, 
They took people who were heartbroken. They had them bring a picture of the person who broke their heart. They stuck it to the top of the tube of the MRI. They had them look at the picture of the person who broke their heart and relive the breakup while they looked at what was going on in their brain. So, by the way, when I saw that study, the first thing I slipped to was how much were they paid? Because, you know, you wanna, that's a little brutal. But anyway, but, but what people discovered was that something very interesting happens in our brain when we get rejected. The same areas get activated as get activated when we experience physical pain. Our brain is it's very, very close. The assumption was that these rejection pathways in the brain literally piggyback on the physical pain pathways. That's why in almost every language, the expression is hurt feelings, that hurt part, because it's so similar. They did a proof of concept study in which they took people and did the experiment again with a, you know, with a rejection. But this time they gave half people um, like a sugar pill and half a pain reliever over the counter. And the people who had a pain reliever, who didn't know they had a pain reliever, reported less emotional pain in the rejection experiment, because it's really similar to physical pain. So, and by the way, I'm not suggesting anyone take a pain reliever to their date, say, because it's, well, it's very pessimistic. And, um, and it's also, it makes a little bit of a difference, but that's not really gonna make enough of a difference if that date goes really, really badly. Um, which I hope, I hope it won't, but anyway. Um, so the other thing that happens though, when we get rejected is we suddenly become intensely, intensely self-critical. We literally kick ourselves when we're down. A small thing happens and the dialogue in our head be, I am such a loser, such an idiot. What's wrong with me? I wish I were taller. I wish I was smarter. I wish I were richer. I wish I was this. I wish I was that. You all know this, right? When you've been rejected, especially romantically, this, this list of all your faults and shortcomings appears in your head and plays over and over and over again. And it's interesting that we do that because when we sustain a physical injury, like if we have a cut in our hand, no one goes, takes a bread knife and goes, oh, I wonder how much deeper I can make this one. But we do that with emotional injuries all the time. Our self-esteem just got hurt and we decide, oh, I'm gonna kick it when it's down. We join Fight Club for some reason. Now, what we need to be doing after a rejection is the absolute, absolute opposite. We need to be reviving our self-esteem. Here's the way to do that. Um, the common way people think to do that is positive affirmations. Do we are these big? Here in Australia, like the, the, I am beautiful, I am worthy of success, I am going to be a huge, you know. Now, there's research about these, and the research shows that positive affirmations will make people who feel bad about themselves feel worse. They are very useful for one group of people, people who feel great about themselves to begin with. So that's useless, but why? Because when something falls outside our domain of what we believe to be true, we just reject the idea. So when you just got rejected, looking in the mirror as tears are streaming your makeup down your face and going, I'm beautiful, does not register as convincing. So it actually just reminds you, I'm not, and then you feel worse. So what can you do? So the thing you can do is something we call self. Affirmations. And what that means is you make a list. I'm just going to use an example, let's say in a romantic domain. You got rejected, you're upset. Make a list of everything that you know makes you a good catch. You know makes you a really good person to be in a relationship with. You might be um, a great listener. You might be emotionally available. You might be really loyal. You might be really fun at parties. You might be easy to travel with. You might give great back rubs and you might, you know, make an amazing souffle. Um, I don't know if I said so. 
But anyway, you know what I'm saying? You, you make a list of, because you never see in those dating profiles, does he make plays? You know, you're, all right. So make a list of all the qualities that you have that you know you have, that you're sure you have. Then choose one of them and write a two-paragraph essay about why that's a valuable thing and why this will be appreciated by other people in a relationship or why it has been in the past. If this happens, let's say, in the employment domain, make a list of all the things that make you a great employee. You're responsible, you're reliable, you have a work ethic. If it happens in friendship, what makes you a good friend? And write an essay, do one a day until you feel better. That will revive your self-esteem because it focuses on what you bring to the table, not what you don't, which is the opposite of what you need to be doing, but it's what your mind is telling you to do. So that's how you deal with rejection. You revive your self-esteem. Another one I'm going to talk about is loneliness. Now, loneliness is defined purely subjectively, right? It depends solely on whether you feel disconnected from the people around you. Um, you might be surrounded by friends. For example, um, how many people here are um, married or in relationships? All right, great. 60% of people in relationships report feeling lonely. I'm by no means suggesting any one of you are those. But, but people feel lonely within relationships because you can coexist alongside someone but feel emotionally disconnected. You don't really have deep talks. You get home and it's all about, did you pay the electric bill? Did you get the milk? Oh, look, TV's on. You know, it's like, it's like that. There's no, there's no real um, connection. And so th the problem is with loneliness is that it is extraordinarily damaging to our emotional and to our physical health. The American Psychological Association issued a press release last year stating that chronic loneliness was a bigger public health threat than smoking and obesity combined. Combined. Because the science says that chronic loneliness will increase your likelihood of an early death by anywhere from 14 to 25 percent, depending on the study. It will kill you. And no one knows it. Cigarette packs come with warnings. Loneliness does not. And so people aren't even aware that they're lonely. But they just feel really disconnected. Now, why does loneliness persist? When it happens, first of all, it's a stigma. We as a society can spot lonely people and we stigmatize them. We don't want to sit with them. You know, the kid who's sitting alone in the lunchroom, no one's rushing up to sit next to that person. It's like the plague. Let's stay away. I don't want to be associated. Must be something wrong with them, is what we think. But the bigger problem is what happens in our own head. Because our mind, again, goes right to work doing the wrong thing. When we are lonely, we develop two perceptual distortions, which are very costly. Number one, we tend to think that people around us care much less than they actually do. And number two, we tend to think that the relationships we do have aren't that valued. And so why should I go and put myself out there and risk more rejection when I'm already feeling so bad if A, it's not going to be worth it, and B, those people don't care anyway. And so loneliness makes us withdraw more, keep to ourselves more. And even if we go and we try and force ourselves, um, to show up. You know, we'll, we'll park ourselves at the park, we'll force ourselves to go to the party, because we should, but we'll park ourselves by the vegetables and the Vegemite. No, I'm trying to work Vegemite into something. Fine. So, hummus dip, whatever, with a scowl on our face, and lo and behold, no one's coming to talk to us. Well, because you look scary. That's why no one's coming to talk to you. And so, or when we reach out, we'll reach out and say, I haven't seen you in a month. Well, that's inviting, right? And so, what we need to do is understand that we might feel that people don't care 
but that's a distortion. They care more. And we have to reach out to them in a way that's positive. Now, that's difficult to do when you're feeling really raw and really bad. And my solution to this is going to sound completely stupid, but trust me on this. The answer, emoticons. Yes, you see. Because if you get a text saying, I haven't seen you in a month, you go like, mm. if you get a text saying, I haven't seen you in a month, smiley face, you read it differently. You do. You read it differently. You're like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen him in a month, as opposed to like, oh, it's not my fault. Um, so use emoticons, because when we're lonely, it's going to come out not good. It's going to come out a little too hostile or a little too apologetic. I know you don't have time for me, but I was wondering if not a good opener. Just let's have coffee is a good opener. And, and when you're in a marriage um, and you're feeling lonely, then you have to reconnect. You have to do small things. I'll be talking more about relationships tomorrow. But you have to do small things. You're sitting and, and watching whatever you watch on TV or Netflix with your partner. Reach out and hold their hand. Now, they're going to be highly alarmed. What did you do to the car? You know, that's what they're going to think because like, that just, it's not a usual thing. But reassure them you didn't do anything to the car and that, you know, like, no, I just, you know, we used to hold hands when we watched TV. Or, you know, we used to go for a walk and talk about this. Let's, let's go for a walk and talk about that. And your partner's going to be suspicious for a little bit, but they'll get over it, and then they'll, they'll start to respond. In other words, you have to reach out and deepen the relationships you have, because that's the way out of loneliness. Withdrawing and like, well, no, it's not, I don't know, it's not going to work. So people always say to me, yeah, the, 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 the relationship didn't work. So I'm off the, I took myself off the dating web, web apps, you know, uh, for six months. Why? What do you think is going to happen in six months? You're going to feel more positive? You're going to feel more confident after avoiding that and being anxious about it? No. So do it cautiously, but reach out. Connect to people. So I'm going to end with talking about um, stress at work again, um, because there's one little exercise I want you to do. I said most of the stress happens in our head outside of work. Now, here's an exercise I want you to do. If you can, open your what's it and um, make um, three columns we're going to have. Column number one is, and I just want you to write a few now because it'll take a while, but just to get a sense of it, in terms of your job or your, your life as a student, write down what the specific functions are, the specific things, all the different things that you do. So it could be, um, I, I go to meetings, I give expense reports, I uh, file these papers, I give a presentation, there's the staff meeting, but then there are the other meetings. Like make an exhaustive list. It'll probably be 20, 30 different things in column A. Column B, write down how many hours a week you do that specific task. So for example, if it's school and tests is one of those things, like, so how many hours a week are there actual tests or do you have to study for tests or do you have to have that specific class that you don't like? And when you're done with that, and again, don't do it now, it takes too long, then on the third column, rank from one to five, five being really, really, really stressful and one being that, um, how stressful the task is. Now, what you'll find is that there are only a few discrete, really stressful tasks in your work week. And you probably only have a few hours of them a week, even in the stressful job. And what that means is that A, start thinking of your job as not necessarily that stressful if it's only a few hours a week, but think about how you handle those tasks. For one person, for example, they said, oh, for me, it's doing this expense report. I can't stand it and I have to do it every week. I say, so when do you do it? Ah, oh, Friday, five minutes before I leave. And I'm like, wow, a five-minute task that stresses you out 
and you carry that on your shoulders the entire week. That's like saying, here's my stressful thing, let's supersize it and see how big I can make it because it's, un it's in your head all week. We tend to postpone and procrastinate on the stuff that is stressful instead of do that Monday morning, be done with it. So don't postpone stressful tasks, number one. Number two, see if you really have to do them. Revisit, do I actually have to go to that meeting? Do I really have to do this thing? Maybe not. Some of us can delegate, but most successful people hate delegating because no one's going to do it as good as you. But invest the time in training someone to do the task that you hate because you might hate the expense report and then you find somebody, oh, I love making these reports. Like find someone to delegate to. And then you can actually manage um, the stress and really get a perspective on really how stressful is your job. You might find that, you know what? 90% of my job I really like. It's those few things that make it feel like a really stressful job. And those I can maybe manage a bit better. So we just looked at very common emotional wounds, very common emotional experiences um, that negatively impact our health and our functioning and our happiness and how treating these wounds can make a real difference. And there's much more to doing these things. I'm obviously just making everything very brief at the moment. But my question to you is, why don't we know this? Why don't we talk about it? You know, yeah, maybe you don't admit I'm bipolar or I have depression. Fine. But why do we hide the fact that we were in the bathroom crying because our cat died? Or that really, we're really upset because we got rejected by someone we contacted on that? And the reason is we don't like to admit that because we don't want to be seen by others as being emotionally weak. That's the real reason. Oh, it'll, it'll, it'll mark us. So like, we're not, we're not tough. We're emotionally weak. But that, reflects a very basic misunderstanding about what emotional strength actually is. In fact, our whole concept of emotional strength as a society is completely distorted. It is derived almost solely from the action movie hero, like um, Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Did you, do you know this movie in the movie Taken? So for those who haven't seen it, Neeson plays some kind of ex-operative of sorts, and his adult daughter is, is in Europe, and she gets she's about to be kidnapped by sex traffickers. And he, she calls him, and he's in another country, and you know, she calls him. Oh, and by the way, that's not a spoiler. The movie's called Taken. You know, you know, she, and by the way, there are two sequels. She gets taken a lot. But anyway, so he's, he's uh, apparently, she gets it. I haven't seen him, but, but so he, he's on the phone with her. And, and, you know, and, and she said, oh, they're about to take me. And then they come in, they find her under the bed, and they drag her away screaming, the sex traffickers. And he and the, and, and the bad guy gets on the phone, and Liam Neeson says, I have a very particular set of skills. That became a meme, that line, right? I have a very particular set of skills. Well, you know, um, being in touch with his feelings is not one of them, uh, um, really. Because would that have made him any less heroic if he said the same line, but with a tear running down his cheek? or with a lip tremble, something in his throat. His daughter just got taken by sex traffickers. He does not feel, see her again, and he's cool as a cucumber. That's what we see in popular culture. It is not human. Taken is not an action movie, it's science fiction. Most of them are. Because what makes somebody emotionally strong is not how our tear ducts react in the moment. It's how we bounce back. It's how we manage. I recently worked with two um, entrepreneurs in New York, Sally and Amanda, and each of them had these startups that they you know, put their whole guts into. 
And both of them tried to get funding and failed. And when Sally found out, she burst into tears. She was absolutely devastated. And when Amanda found out, she was with her, you know, her, her team and she stood there. She was stoic. She was strong. And if you took a snapshot and I said, well, who's emotionally stronger? Well, Amanda. But the next day, the next day, Sally woke up and started working on her next big idea. Amanda never tried anything entrepreneurial again. So who's emotionally stronger now? It's Sally. It's not how you respond in the moment. That is a physiological thing. Your body gets to have its moment. Whether you shake, whether you cry, whether you get upset, it's the bounce back. And that's up to you. How you bounce back is up to you. And it's super, super important. So improving our emotional health really means that. It means understanding how to treat emotional wounds. It means understanding how to bounce back. And it means being able to talk about our emotions in a way that's open, because it's the delivery that matters. If you're a matter of fact, if you just can say, yeah, my cat died, I'm really upset. You won't be seen as weak. If you, they catch you hiding in the bathroom, you might be. You know, 100 years ago, people began practicing personal hygiene. And life expectancy rates rose by 50% in just a matter of decades. And I believe our quality of life could rise just as much if we all started practicing emotional first aid and prioritizing our emotional and we do not have to wait decades to see the result. We will see them immediately. Now, I'm a twin. And as a psychologist, but especially as a twin, my request for you, for all of you, is treat your emotional and your physical health equally. Thank you very much.